Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud Based Mayhem. Happy New Year and uh, welcome to 2022. Let's hope 2022 is a little kinder to all of us than the last couple of years have been. But uh, to kick off this new year, I've got a great show for you today that's, again, quite a bit different than stuff we've done in the past. Uh, I was on a, the Soaring the Sky podcast recently and they had me on as a guest which is dedicated to glider pilots sailplane pilots and one of the guests that had been on their show reached out to me uh clement Sipik. he lives down in the boulder denver area now and flies there but he's an austrian sailplane pilot and fascinating individual and he got into sailplanes a long time ago and then went away from it for also again a long time and then came back to it about four years ago and he's got a blog and video series and has just really chased it hard and you know really figured a lot of things out so he's been listening to this podcast lately and and reached out and was pretty fascinated with the you know the various differences and similarities between the two ways of aviation so we talk talk about risk tolerance and weather and finding lines and just all the differences. I haven't flown in a sailplane. I'd love to and I need to, but uh, we just kind of dug into both of each other's worlds and really enjoyed it. And I've needed to get a lot more sailplane pilots on the show. So here you go. Enjoy this talk with Clement Sipik. Clemens, welcome to the Mayhem. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. We kind of got connected through Chuck Fulton's show, Soaring the Sky. I did a, a podcast with him recently, and and he recommended we have a chat about flying sailplanes. And I think you you heard that show, and you, you caught a few things that may have been uh, not exactly true because I don't know anything about flying sailplanes. So, and I've always wanted to, and I've always been super fascinated with them because I I fly with next to and very briefly <laughs> next to sailplanes in the Alps all the time. It's super popular over there. We don't see them much in my part of the world, but King Mountain's a big site here, you know, and they have a fly-in. They used to have a fly-in every year. I'm not sure if they still do, but anyway, welcome to the show and I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah. Well, thanks Gavin for having me. This is, uh, it's super exciting. Uh, I, I also just got hooked up with the show through Chuck. I actually wasn't even aware this is how much we, we fly in the sky together with paragliders and sailplanes all the time. But, you know, we, we still typically don't don't talk to each other very much. And I, so I'm, I'm su- I, I've listened to a few of your episodes and it's uh, super exciting. And I'm like, yeah, this is this is really cool stuff. And uh, so I'm going to be a fan of your show for sure. Ah. And uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm super excited to to, to be here. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I've always just, you know, I think we're going to delve into, you know, your your progression and what you've learned flying sailplanes. And, you know, we were we emailed back and forth a little bit about, you know, it seems like the difference about 5X, you know, in terms of uh, distance covered and speed and all that, which sounds about right. But you, you don't, let's start here. You're, I believe you're sitting in Boulder, Colorado, my alma mater. And but you don't sound like you're from the states. What's your what's your history? Yeah, no, I'm 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 originally from Austria, uh, so that's where I grew up. And uh, I actually learned to fly gliders in Austria. Did my 
license when I was 16, who probably by for about five years at the time. And then, um, you know, then a career got in the way and a family and global and stuff. And, you know, I had to move <laughs> to places where you don't really fly gliders like London and Paris and, uh, you know, Minnesota is <laughs> not, not a super great place to fly gliders either. So, uh, and then I was in Ohio for a while. So it, it just, it's just uh, didn't work for a while. But then I'm like, you know, reached a point in my life where I'm like, I, this is what I wanted to do all the time. And I'm going to go back to it. And uh, this time I'm going to do it really. And I'm doing it seriously. I'm putting a lot of time into it. I probably I learned, you know, this it's almost like a full time job now for me because I'm also club president here in Boulder. So I'm 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 super, uh, I'm super into it. Um, uh, bought my own plane a few years ago. And uh, I've been doing uh, some some really cool flights uh, in, in, and progressed pretty quickly. I also put up a YouTube channel, mm. uh, Chasing the Air. I saw that. It's it's really some terrific content there. Yeah, I mean it's 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 very technical content. It's really for glider pilots. It's uh, it doesn't really meet the entertainment need as much as uh, as you know for the general public. Um, I haven't figured that out, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I've just I've used all my writings and and videos to progress myself, quite frankly. So I used it to learn, uh, and I learned so much from going back and analyzing my flights, and uh, especially when I fly with you know we have a bunch of national champions, uh, world champion contenders uh, out here in Boulder, and uh, you know if we fly together and. Um, I will go back and, and look at, you know, what exactly were the differences? What did they do better than I did? And or where did I actually make the better decisions? And you know, it really helped me tremendously to uh, uh, progress very quickly. So, I mean, I'm now flying nationals and it's, uh, it's, been, it's been a lot of learning in a very short period of time. And I think uh, at this point, uh, uh, it's, it's super exciting. I'm also finding that a lot of people now look at, look at this and say, yeah, that's, I really like that. I want to, I want to do that too. <laughs> to take me through the kind of steps of progression with, with sailplanes, the, the, when, when you, when you start and you start learning, is it, it just is, yeah, again, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm I mean, pretty I clueless mean, the, the when learning, it comes to. Yeah. The, it's, it's quite interesting because what you're being taught, and I don't know if that's the same for paragliding, but what are you being taught in gliding is basically just to take off and land safely. Okay. Uh, that's really what you're taught. It's like, you know, it's uh, you're, you're to get your license. And I mean, it usually takes, uh, it can take, if you go to a school and you want to do it really intensely, it takes about two weeks to get it done. Uh, but uh, for the most part, if people do it in a club environment, it's, it's a several months. And, and, and all they learn in that period is really taking off and landing. They have learned nothing about soaring. Oh, okay. Uh, so, so to get your license, you know, I mean, yeah, sometimes you might have flown in a thermal with an instructor and the instructor might have told you, oh, this was a thermal. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, you haven't really learned anything. So you get your license and you're a pilot. And you haven't really learned anything other than, you know, you can control your plane and you can you, you can operate in an airport environment. You know how to use your radio and your instruments and, uh, you know, how, you know, you, you have your lessons in stall prevention and, 
you know, pattern altitude and operating in an airport environment. That, those are the things to operate safely. That's what you've learned, but you haven't learned soaring. So and, it and sounds so, like, is that, you know, is that initial instruction, we would call that our P2, you know, you're getting your, your uh -huh. novice license where you can fly without an instructor is when you do that in the sailplane world, is it quite similar to learning how to fly a small airplane? You know, you're, you're because you're, you know, we don't, we don't get as much of the airspace training because we're not dealing with it as much. We deal with it, of course, especially if you're in, in Germany or you're in the flatlands in Europe, you've got to, you know, airspace is a big thing when you start flying cross country. But uh, it sounds like it's kind of the, a lot of theory, and the, the, and the theory, yeah, there is a lot of theory. And the theory is very similar to the airplane theory. So, in fact, yeah. you learn a lot of things that you have to do in, in the U.S. in particular, much more so than in Europe. In the U.S., you have to learn all the rules that uh, affect airplanes, even though you will never come across some of those rules. Oh. Like, how do you how do you stop short at the at the runway line? <laughs> how do I stop <laughs> short, right? And wait for, wait for takeoff. I mean, it just doesn't happen. So, you learn a lot of stupid things that actually never have any material application in your in your real soaring but but the real learning honestly the real learning only starts once you're done with the license and then uh, and then you're basically on your own unless you have mentors or coaches or friends who help you along the way uh, there is no formal there's no formal progression from there other than you know this you're encouraged to do some badges and you did some recognition around it yeah but there's no no more teaching no formalized teaching around it so you're basically on your own and so it it, it we lose a lot of people um in the sport after they have done their basic license because they don't know how to progress from there god uh, i could be talking but, to a, a paragliding instructor right now you just said exactly what i hear from all the instructors i mean we we call that you know the whole nest thing you just you know they get just enough information to to get out of the nest but you don't really teach them that much about going somewhere <laughs> it's that's exactly right really exactly there's right. the attrition yeah. rate in our sport is massive because of that that's that's our that's the theory anyways because you just right. you know you're you're kicking somebody out when they know just enough to be really dangerous yeah, and I'm passionate enough that I don't want that to happen, right? So I think that's part of what I'm, you know, my own personal interest is helping people not to get stuck in that in that phase and, and actually helping them uh, jump over that over that hoop. And we've, we've created a lot of good content and, uh, and, and we're really at, at Boulder. We're one of the top soaring clubs in the world. Uh, we are, really? Um, yeah, we are. Uh, it's Whoa. it's in the U.S. We're one of the top clubs, but then we, we compete, for example, we compete at, at a club level competition uh, worldwide against this an online that you basically upload your flights. Uh, and there is a world speed league um, where basically the way it's handled is that your flights um, get uh, get analyzed based on a two and a half hour duration in the flight where you have where six legs will count towards your distance that you've flown within those two and a half hours. And the average speeds that you achieved over that uh, over that distance will count towards your league score. And the way it's scored at the club level is that the uh, on I think it's like 19 consecutive weekends during the season, uh, flights on weekends will count towards the league score, and the top three um, scores from each club from different pilots each weekend will count towards the club score. 
And uh, we, we were number three this year worldwide out of 1,000 some soaring clubs. And last year we were number two. Whoa! Um, so we're, we're, we're among the top soaring clubs in the world. Uh, that so, blows me away. Yeah. I had no and, idea it was that strong in the U.S. That's amazing. Well, it's not the U.S. isn't that strong in soaring. It's just it's bolder. just uh, you know we're 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 very good. The Minden Soaring Club is exceptionally good. They were the number one. Uh, so Minden, Nevada, uh, and uh, uh, they fly in the Owens Valley. So they're f- amazing conditions, especially for that type of of flying. Uh, Moriarty is pretty good uh, uh, down in New Mexico. Uh, and then there are some some clubs on the East Coast, but the East Coast they have they basically have only rich soaring conditions where they can go really big distances where they have to fly uh, you know uh, 100 feet or 50 feet off the off the trees for like six seven hours at a time. Whoa! Uh, at, at, at V&E basically. So these guys are. That sounds <laughs> exciting. That's, that's a it's a very intense way of flying. Yeah. Whoa. Versus our, our flying is is much more. You know, it's much much higher above the ground most of the time. I've had this theory that you know that the best in our sports, this guy Kriegel Maurer, and you know he he's he's famous for not turning and yeah, and he's very that, very yeah. often on the terrain and, and using little bits of lift coming out of the trees. And, and, you know, where I fly here in Sun Valley is very similar to the conditions you get in Boulder. You know, we get really tall and we go on these monster glides and your glides would be, you know, just ridiculous here. I've flown glides for 200 plus miles in one direction without making a turn. Oh, stop it. Not, not one turn. Get out of here. Just no, (laughs) no. I mean, especially we, we, we have these amazing convergence conditions where we have the westerly winds is blowing over the continental divide of the Rocky Mountains and, and, and we have thermals rising on the east side of the continental divide and this, these, therm, these thermals are pulling in air from the plains. And so you have got a ground level flow that is coming in from the plains and you've got the wind coming over the continental divide. And where those two meet, that's where, where our convergence line sets up. It's an amazing convergence line. You can go from the Wyoming border, you can go, you know, past uh, Pikes Peak, and you basically don't turn. Wow! Is the bee's knees for you guys big FAI triangles? Is that, I mean, that's that's what we, you know, that's the holy grail of paragliding. Yeah, triangles are triangles are a big part of the sport because they're more complicated, right? Because you cannot just do yo-yos yeah. around the convergence line. So for us, for us, I love flying triangles because it's it's a real challenge, especially in our conditions. Because now. If for us to fly a triangle out into the plains usually doesn't work, especially we've got this big Denver airspace that is sitting right next to us. Uh, so for us to fly a big triangle, we have to go far west from Boulder. Uh, so and so that basically means we have to cross multiple mountain ranges, especially if you want to fly like a, a 750 uh, or so triangle. I mean, basically now you're now you're in western Colorado, so you taking off in Boulder, you fly maybe south towards Pikes Peak, and now you then you're heading over towards Grand Junction. Uh, and so you're basically crossing multiple, multiple mountain ranges. Uh, and then on the way, then you have to go uh, to another triangle lake that goes more towards the Wyoming border. Uh, you have to cross all those mountain ranges back, but uh, in and they have different configurations. And uh, 
And then you have to, you know, still have the conditions to, at the end of the day, make it back home. <laughs> for for <laughs> you so, guys, for you guys, is that, you know, you're in serious 14er country there. If for oh, yeah. you guys, is that, uh, is that a little puckering? I mean, I mean, we can find places to land we, a lot easier than you this. do. We actually have one of our biggest club things is uh, what we call the 14er challenge. And it's a career challenge. Uh, so it's it's a career challenge for all Colorado pilots or for anyone who wants it's open to any glider pilot in the world who wants to come fly in Colorado. We have this we call it the Fortina challenge. You basically have to fly above all your, all the Fortinas uh, over your soaring career, and you basically have to tag them all. And there's a sort of minimum distance around the peak. You have to basically be above each peak, wow. um, and there's 58 of them. And uh, so you you uh, there's there's only five people so far. Who have uh, have completed it? Uh, I'm I'm well on my way. I've got a few left. Uh, this, those are the hardest ones that I've still got left. But it's uh, in in within three years, I've uh, I've gotten the, I've gotten pretty high up there already. So, but that's uh, that's one of the coolest challenges we we have out here is is fly over all the fourteeners. It's uh, super super demanding and interesting. Why why can't you do the triangle out over the plains? Why can't you just run the run run the east side of the of the mountains and and then punch it out and come back is it just too much west wind no it's not so much to it that the conditions over the plains they tend not to be that good quite frankly i mean there really? are times yeah there are times when it's it's fine um uh, well there's and there's a practical consideration so for us particularly in boulder is we have this big denver airspace right uh, class b airspace and it's uh, it's just pretty big. I mean, there's people that there are people who have flown around it, um, around the airspace. And that's one of the kind of interesting flights you can do from here. You can try and fly around the Denver airspace. Conditions aren't super good usually, and and it's it's more wet, right? You got into the the the, the, the Platte River valleys, the North Platte, South Platte river valleys. Um, uh, thermals don't tend to be as strong, they are not as reliable, though it gets more windy, uh, cloud bases tend not to be that high. The conditions over the mountains for us are usually way better than out in the plains. Hmm. Interesting. L let me get back to my question you know, when I was talking about Kriegel and gliding. So the the he would say that we're flying really inefficiently here by we're turning too much half the time, you know, when you're turning half oh, yeah. the time, you're we going the wrong way. Much, right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I know yeah, you yeah. don't, but I was just thinking about, you know, when you're, when you're doing these 14, you know, when you're doing the triangles up into the 14 ers and stuff, you know, for us, you know, looking at a 20 K or even a 20, we often have a 20 mile glide between one mountain range yeah. and the next, when we're going towards Montana, we got to cross all these mountain ranges. Yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, we'll get real tall before we go across the flats for the same reason you just said that the flats, they, you know, in the middle of the day, you're going to find a climb somewhere across there, but they're not going to be, it's not as obvious and it's not as easy and they're not going to be as strong as the mountains. So we'll, we'll spend some time getting super tall, you know, get up close to class one and, and then, or class A, and then, and then we'll go, and then we'll go on glide and hope we get to the neck, you know, we hopefully make it to the range. Whereas I feel like, you know, Kriegel hasn't flown over here, but I feel like if he was here, he would have more of an Alps approach where he would you know, only get as high as barely needed and then kind of just work it on a really good line and, and mm -hmm, get, to, mm -hmm. you know, so I'm wondering if you've been able to, are you guys constantly trying to use more of the kind of the terrain or you've got the glide where you just get tall and you stay tall? 
We have, we usually have the glide. In the Alps, it's different, and the conditions in the Alps are very different. So I've flown quite a bit in, in Austria too, in the Alps. And in the Alps, it's, compared to the rock, it's very interesting. Uh, what I find is in, in the Alps, you have very, very reliable lift around, along all of the spines. Mm -hmm. So you basically, as long as you stay right on top of the spine, uh, you can usually go straight without having to turn. And, and here it's not that obvious because the cloud base is so high and the thermal distance between the ground and the, and the cloud base, there's just there's so much space in between that there is a disconnect uh, that develops between what's happening at ground level and what is happening at the, at the cloud base level. Uh, and that's why I think it, Colorado in particular, it is not as, as easy as obvious to go straight along the spines. But in part, it may also be that we're not doing it, number one, because we don't have to, because the clouds are so high, so we can, you know, be, be up there, and it feels a lot more comfortable being up there. Uh, and number two is because so much of our terrain is so forbidding, right? Mm -hmm. so, so in Colorado, we don't have that many places where we can actually safely land. Uh, I mean, we're, as, as sailplane pilots, we're mostly confined to airports. I mean, sure, you can go into a farmer's field, but every landing in a farmer's field means that there's a risk that you might damage your, your glider. And those gliders are pretty expensive. And then when they're damaged, they're also down for months at a time. So, so you really don't want to damage your glider. What about backcountry airports? Are they, are they fine for you guys? Dirt yeah, and grass or not really? Are, most of them are not because most of them are too narrow. Oh. The, the narrowness is the biggest issue, right? We've got these long wings and they're pretty close to the ground. And, and everyone who's, you know, most of the people who have these big backcountry airstrips, they built them for, you know, this, this uh, uh, big, uh, big tire uh, kind of uh, uh, backcountry airplanes. Yeah. They're all tail have draggers. high wings. Yeah, yeah, tail draggers with high wings. And so if you land a glider there, the chances are you're going to catch a, a tree or a bush or something mm. uh, right on final approach or just as you, as, you t as you touch down and you're touching down at 60 knots or 50 knots, uh, uh, you know, maybe 45 knots. But that's still a lot of speed and a lot of energy uh, that has to get dispersed. So if you touch down and you catch a wing, then this whole thing will, you know, will turn around and chances are your tail boom is broken. So you don't want to, most of the backcountry strips aren't good. So I have spent an inordinate amount of time looking at landable places in Colorado, I've driven around I have a drone that I fly over fields to check them out and, uh, you know, do measurements in Google Earth. How, how wide is the, how wide is the runway? Wow, I've got a data, you're a dedicated. Data, detailed database of, uh, of all the landable sites across Colorado that I personally am feeling comfortable I can use. Uh, you know, I'm making it available to other people, but uh, obviously always at their own at their own risk. I mean, things things change so quickly too. So, but uh, yeah, most cut most backcountry airports aren't aren't very good. Take me back the, the people that you were talking about that get into it first. How, how much does it cost if somebody's listening to this, going, "Man, I really want to get into flying sailplanes." <laughs> It totally depends on whether they have aviation background or not. So if you're a paraglider, uh, a hang glider pilot, or you're a, um, a, uh, an airplane pilot, actually, I think hang glider and paraglider pilots will probably make the fastest transition, quite frankly, uh, because for them, you know, if you're good at it already, you already understand how this thing works, works. you know, where to find lift. So th then it's more about the mechanics of controlling a sailplane and 
I don't know, I mean, but you, you know what it is that you're controlling. Essentially, it's not going to take you a long time to figure it out. Um, so typically it takes, uh, you know, somewhere between, you know, 20, it could be 20, 20 30, 40 flights with an instructor. Uh, these are usually short pattern flights where you just learn to control this thing. Then you, you fly your solo flights until your instructor is, is comfortable uh, with you getting the license. Uh, it varies greatly. Uh, usually gets uh, usually gets more expensive the older you get because it takes people more time. Uh, kids learn it quicker. Mm. Uh, it's a it's a few thousand dollars usually until okay. you get the license. And then oh. if you are in a in a in a club environment, uh, you don't have to have your own plane. I mean, it depends on the club, right? I mean, we're one of the you know th that's also one of the distinguishing features of Boulder is is we're just an amazing club. We have. You know, two uh, with two very strong, uh, high, you know, uh, top state of the art uh, two seaters, and we have two state of the art high performance single seaters as club aircraft. So all of our members can fly those club gliders, and 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 that's really cheap to do. Uh, uh, but then if, if even if you want to own your own, um, the cost vary dramatically, right? So you can get a good sailplane. Uh, a, a, you know, a, a decent sailplane. It used to be world class level for twenty, thirty thousand um, dollars. But uh, you, if you could buy, you could also buy a new state of the art uh, competition glider that you would buy right now, and to be top of the line, that gets up to $300,000. Um, $300, so it, the, the the range is pretty wide, but you can to have you can you have just as much fun in a twenty thousand dollar right. glider than you have in a in a three hundred thousand dollar glider. And is that technology changing pretty rapidly, or is it just microscopic? You know, improvements. Yeah, at this it's point? it's it's in stages. Uh, um, I think at this point, it's more fine tuning. Uh, the latest generation of gliders uh, that came out over the last five years uh, is maybe has a two percent import, uh, three, two, three, four percent performance improvement over the prior generation. Mm. Uh, if you want to win in the world, that's a uh, lot. Want to win in the nationals? Two, three, four percent is not that much, right? Oh, and for us, it'd be quite a bit. Okay, in per percentage terms, it's not glide points. Yeah, mm. I mean, my my glider is, for example, my glider is seventeen years old. It's the prior generation. Uh, okay. I've got a glide ratio of forty eight to one. Um, I could get a new one now at the top line. They would be at maybe fifty six to one, something like that, in eighteen meter class. Um, but the uh, I, I you know I've done some math on it in comparison flights. I I don't believe that those differences are as great as as, as that difference. So I, oh, okay. I would say it's it's a few percentage points. So you can, you can beat the guys on that. Just make a couple better decisions and you're fine. If, if you if you're making the better decisions, you're yeah yeah. Uh, the glider is the glider is secondary. It's the pilot that counts for the most part. Ah, cool. All right. So when you come through a, a, a with the club provides the planes, you play pay your club dues, and you have access to these yeah absolutely yeah ah, cool yeah and, and is it growing worldwide uh, it's we're, we're it's uh the sport worldwide is not growing we actually have a pretty good demand um out here um last year we had some you know bottlenecks with instruction because of covid so we actually had a long wait list of people wanting to join the club and getting yeah. trained go do stuff um um, and we have, you know, there's um, some capacity constraints at the airport, but um, by and large, I think we, we don't have a lot of issues attracting people. Uh, and there's there's a lot. We also have a lot of 
uh, former particularly hang glider pilots. We've got a lot of hang glider pilots that uh, are wanting to join the sport of soaring once they reach an age where they're no longer comfortable that they're that their legs are very that their legs are an appropriate uh, landing gear uh, ah, substitutes basically. So, okay. So that's and you know our chief flight instructor is a former hang glider teacher and he had a school a hang gliding school. He's uh, uh, also a very strong uh, sailplane racing contender. So yeah, well, it's a it's there's 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 a lot of interest uh, and. We don't have that problem. There's there's a lot of clubs actually in the country that struggle, uh, but yeah. uh, we're not one of them. Okay, oh, great. Back to learning. The you know you said you learned when you were you know, younger when you were 16. You got your license, flew some, and then you left it for 25 years, and you've come back to it with this just dedication and passion. Uh, when you went from that newbie you know you're coming back to it and you're just getting tossed out of the nest what would be some advice to people in that same position to get to where you are now it, what, what's a what's a rapid way to we always talk about in paragliding there are no shortcuts it's just it's just time and currency and you know studying everything you possibly can if you're not getting the hours but you know so there's obviously training and you can do you know you you can you can get there fast, but you you've got to do all the work. There's no short, you know. There's there's no, uh, you know. There's there's not a. I don't know how yeah, to say there that. Is, but... There is no there is no there's no substitute for flying experience. That is that is definitely true. But I think there is uh, there's a lot of pilots who have been pilots for twenty years and have not made a lot of progress. Hmm. Uh, versus there are pilots that can make a huge amount of progress in a few years. And I think there is a the, the the personal attitude that you have towards it makes a huge difference. And whether you actually really invest the time and the energy to understand what is going on in the atmosphere, how exactly is it working? There's a lot of studying that you can do. There's actually the theory really actually makes a big difference, right? But it's it's not the theory that you learn from the glider flying handbook or you know it's like like government publications. You have to go well beyond that and mm. and really try to understand what is it that that uh, makes this thing work, right? And really try to understand the atmosphere. Um, there is um, what we're lucky. We have there's a gliding. You probably have heard about this, um, the Condor Soaring Simulator. Yeah, it's a it's a it's basically a computer uh, simulator uh, for glider flight that is developed for competition glider flying, and uh, it's also an esport platform. And it's it's actually a pretty serious esport platform. So I would recommend to anyone who wants to fly gliders that is a great tool for progression simply because there are certain things like, for example, um, thermal entry uh, and uh, keeping the right bank angle, keeping the speed, uh, keeping the, um, you know, uh, staying centered or making centering corrections. You can do this perfectly in the simulator. And there is, there isn't, that isn't that different, quite frankly, from the real life. So mm -hmm. if you can do this well in the simulator, you can probably do it well in real life. So if, and it, that's a, that's a big difference because uh, in, in that, because it's, it's, that's cost free. You can do it 
every day, soaring weather on the simulator is good every single day. I mean, you can just basically put in the weather that you want to have <laughs> in the simulator, <laughs> right? So you, you, wow. you, you put in the parameters that you want to use. It's not perfect, right? That by, by, no, by any stretch of the imagination, it's not perfect. It doesn't have, it's in the current generation, it doesn't have convergence. It doesn't have thunderstorms. It doesn't have, the wave is still not very good, but thermals are pretty good. Um, you know, uh, ridge lift is exceptionally well done. Maybe a little bit too strong than it than than in real life, but 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 there's a lot of things that are very very similar, and uh, that is something you can practice with. And uh, I find I found that super useful. So I actually did uh, sim before I came back. I I did some simulator flying, and uh, I, I got into the plane and. Uh, after 25 years of not sitting in a glider, they basically said, oh, you can still do this. I'm, I'm amazed. Uh, so I'm, I was basically back into it on day one uh, just because I had done maybe two, 300 hours on the simulator. And are, are these, are, can you get in the Condor and, and flight, do a flight simulation anywhere in the world? Is it built anywhere. for? I mean, there's, really? there's, there's people, there's volunteers that are creating sceneries and those are photorealistic sceneries. Um, uh, it's a lot of work. It's volunteer work. People, there's a hugely committed community towards doing this stuff. And there's there's multiplayer racing every single day. So if somebody wants to be committed and doing multiplayer racing, uh, you can you can fly, you know, at, at a super high level. I mean, these these guys are just as good as the top world class soaring glider pilots in the world on the Whoa. on the simulator. And really? I think if you're if you're at if you're top on the simulator, you. There's there's no doubt in my mind that you can get into a, a, a glider and with you know after the basic instruction and learning how to operate in an airport the counter doesn't teach you that stuff very well right it's it's really more about the flight itself and dealing with decisions on you know how far can I glide how do I final glide calculations how do I do uh, how, uh, how how do I do the, the the thermaling? What is the tactic? When do I fly fast? When do I fly slow? How do I switch gears? Um, which side of the you know on which side of the ridges will I find lift? Uh, where will the lift come up? The, the, this is really well modeled, and wow. so I would I would seriously uh, suggest anyone who wants to make a make this will this is definitely a great boost in in speed. Uh, maybe not a shortcut, but a great boost in speed. Wow, that's fascinating. And I know there's there's people who are pressuring the Condor people to to you know create some modules to let to to open it up for paragliding and for. I know I know paragliders use it a lot to uh, see terrain beforehand. One of my friends that was right. in the XOPS with me, Eduardo, talked about that that he kept going yep. through the course over and over again. Yeah. And of course, the speed's yep. not correct. You're it's not, fantastic to learn great scenery. To see so, it. Yeah. Yeah. So when I flew, for example, I flew last year in the uh, 18 meter nationals in Nephi in Utah. And uh, this was Condor is a perfect way to learn the scenery. So when I when I showed up there, I, I knew where the mountain ranges were. I knew, uh, you know, I knew the terrain. I knew how, how wide the gaps were. I knew where the terrain transitions would become a problem because you had to go. You have to go, uh, for example, if you go across the Vasage Plateau from the uh, from the um, the east side to the west side, you fly into rising terrain, and you have a sense of how wide that is, and you how high you have to be on the east side so you can make the safe transition over the west side without getting stuck on top of the plateau, which 
would be not a good, not a good place to be. <laughs> no. Yeah. We don't yeah. want to land in the Uintas either. Uh, um, right. This, a friend of mine, Stuart Midwinter, back in the day flew all of it, flew hang gliders, paragliders, or, you know, early, early paragliders and sailplanes. And he reached out after that, the show I did with Chuck on the Soaring the Sky podcast and said that he, he saw back in the day, I'm curious from you what you're seeing now that foot launch pilots, so you know, paragliders and, and hang gliders will are way more comfortable banking it up in sailplanes than pilots that just get into sailplanes and don't have any of that experience. They're they're more comfortable in the cockpit using the air. Does that make sense? They're they they get it faster. Now Obviously, that makes sense that they get it faster because they know what how it all works. And the principles are all exactly the same. But have you also seen that that they that they thermal differently? In other words, he, he was he was postulating that they definitely core tighter. That they're willing yes. to. Yes. Yes. Interesting. Yes. That, that is that is true. So paragliders and tank gliders coming into sailplane flying, they have a better sense. They have a definitely a much better appreciation where the thermal originates off the ground okay uh so and and that is because when you start off with sailplanes your instinct is never to be close to the ground because we just we just can't be and be safe right because yeah. we have to keep a glider a, a landable spot in glide and even though yes our glide is way further than 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 uh in hang gliders or paragliders um the um it's it's still hard to find you know, keeping the airport in glide keeps you usually further off the ground. And also because we, our higher speed requires a much greater turn radius to begin with, uh, we there's, the, the, there's usually not, uh, it's, it's very difficult to get that sense where exactly the thermal generate uh, is, is coming off the ground. Usually you're finding it somewhere under the clouds. Most of the time you're actually orienting yourself by the clouds and not by the ground. Mm -hmm. uh, it's It's rare that especially in the early years when people start to glide that they that they focus on the ground they focus more on the clouds especially out here in the in the in the western us where the cloud bases are as high as they are mm -hmm. um and but if the hang glide all those foot launches right that you describe well you start on the ground right so so of course you're going to look for thermals based on the terrain and not on the clouds mm. it's not like you go up on the on the hog back here in boulder and you look up in the sky and say oh <laughs> there's a nice cumulus up there at 18,000 or 22,000 or 22,000 feet right <laughs> uh, i'm going to launch right now because it's it's up there that you can't you can't do that so uh, you, you you know exactly you know this nook and this cranny and this these rocks that's where the lift is probably going to come from and most glider pilots don't think that way most especially not at the beginning it's a it's a progression and you have to deliberately get there and then even if you know that's where it is so I, that happens to me all the time when I'm flying is I'm like there is probably a thermal coming off these rocks and then I fly there and I notice there is a thermal coming off these rocks but I with my minimum speed especially when I'm flying ballasted so I put water in the wings and make the glider extra heavy and now I have to turn at at least 60 knots to to be safely turning so I, if you turn at 60 knots and you crank it at even if you crank it at 50 degree bank angle you're still making a pretty 
pretty wide circle. Mm. And chances are that this little thermal that is coming off these rocks is just not usable. Not usable. Yeah. Uh, versus you in a paraglider, you can just park yourself right on the rock and you you make your way up. Sure. How, yeah. how much of your decision making is is made? And I'll ask you to answer this without thinking that we have an audience for a second, because it, I would imagine as you get better and better and start getting bigger and bigger distances, you start worrying less and less about places to land. But is that is that the case in in sailplane flying? Because we we you know we we're always taught what I'm sure the same thing you are: never fly over an unlandable place and always have something on glide. But as you get better and better, you start, you don't worry about that. You, you know, there's going to be a climb, you know, you can fly over this huge section of trees where there's no place to land. And, you know, if you've got the skills and you can read the sky and you, you know, the, the crossing I did of the Canadian Rockies, we flew hours sometimes without a place to land. And it's, that's a whole nother level of flying. I'm not suggesting people do that, but uh, you know, we, we're not really so confined by an airport. Obviously we can put it down in a tiny little scratch pad. And so I'm just wondering, but to me, when I think about sailplanes, not knowing anything about it, that would be an overriding concern. You're flying a really, you know, expensive aircraft uh, that needs. You can't just put it down in a little postage stamp. Is, is that a big deal, or has it become less and less? It, it becomes less and less, but it is a big deal. Uh, and I mean, that's. I think individual uh, risk tolerance comes hugely into play in that area. So if somebody is like, you know, I just love this so much. If I have a if I if I wreck my three hundred thousand dollar glider, uh, I'll just buy a new one. Um, if and I'm confident that I can survive, uh, you know, they might they might take the approach. That, <laughs> they might take the approach as yeah, it doesn't matter. I'll find lift straight ahead. Um, others maybe less so, right? I mean, wh where I'm at is is I'm at the point where I am I'm if if I'm absolutely confident and sometimes. I am just totally confident, right? That that there is going to be lift. It just it's just totally confident. Then then I don't I don't worry about it, uh, because but I I've reached this point in my in my progression where I'm, um, that that is often the case that I, I can really, if it's like hundred percent, I know it's hundred uh, percent. But if if it's only ninety percent, then I will hesitate. Then no. I will not do it. And risk. I will not go into unlandable terrain if I'm only ninety percent confident that okay. I can fly out of it. Okay, that, it's just that just does not work because I can't take a ten to one, I can't take a, a nine to one gamble uh, that I'm gonna wreck my glider. Mm. Um, you know, even if nine nine is nine is that I won't. But a ten percent risk that's pretty high. That I'm gonna it's pretty high. Yeah, I mean okay. I'm not doing. So you've got to so. be way more constrained by places to land than, than you are. But the the what is the, what is offsetting this though is that you have way better glide. Sure. Right. And I mean, for the most part, I mean, I, if if I'm at you know we're in Boulder and you know where the Wyoming border is is like uh, what is it uh, sixty miles to the north. If I'm at the Wyoming border at seventeen thousand feet, I'm I'm in glide of Boulder. Okay. Uh, right. And so I mean, for us, more oftentimes I can fly uh, from Boulder. You can fly. Uh, uh, you can. You can there's this this badge progression that we have so that you go from you know silver there's a silver badge and a gold badge and a diamond badge so the diamond badge requires you to do a 500 kilometer flight uh, and a, a 300 kilometer declared 
gold flight. You can fly, you can get almost all the badges in Boulder by flying within glide range. Wow. It's, it's, unbelie- it's unbelievable. We don't have to get out of, even out of Boulder, you don't even have to go to other airport. You don't even have to think of other airports to have to be in glide. So uh, oftentimes you can just, it's not hard to keep airports in glide, and how- even if they're far away. How do you think about when you said, you know, if it's a 90% chance, so when you're, you know, you're somewhere pretty deep and your, your glide computer showing that you've got so-and-so airport on a, you said you're, 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 you know, all things considered null, your glide on your, on your wing is, did you say 48 to one? Or forty-five to yeah. one, or something. Okay, yeah, so are you are you calculating? Okay, this is safe. I've got this on glide per current conditions, or are you going? Okay, it's saying that I can get there on a 61, 60 to one glide, and you know I've got this crazy tailwind. I'm getting 80, 90 to one right now, but that could change to thirty-five to one. So I'm going to go to thirty-five to one. No, you you basically do it on current conditions. Okay, uh, and so you you watch the. Um, I'm, I'm probably I'm assuming you have the same thing where you can put on your glide computer you can put a, a current glide uh, L over D and the required glide over L yep, over D totally. and you can look at those side by side and you say well my my required glide over L over D is 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 40 but my current is 60 um, I'm like you know I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm gonna get there yeah right? okay um, yeah so you're just constantly the, balancing on, those things I, I look at those two things all the time and then you also look at um, you know, you, you can use uh, the McCready settings for what you think the next climb is going to be and, and dial those up and they will actually, you know, they make you fly faster. And when you fly faster, obviously your your um, uh, your sync rate is higher and, uh, and your glide goes down. Mm-hmm. Um, so that actually gives you in your flight computer, if you look at um, what is what is necessary to reach a safe airport and you have a, a McCready setting of four, that gives you an inbuilt uh, safety cushion into this thing because it assumes that you're flying faster than you actually have to fly. So you could get a better glide if you have to. Uh, so you can dial it back down. If you find that conditions deteriorate, you can dial the speed a bit, little bit back and then and then you can still get there. Mm. Uh, for you guys, wind is way more... I mean, wind is important for us. Obviously, it's very important for us. Headwind, tailwind. Uh, it doesn't have nearly as much. Yeah. Uh, as a, yeah. As a wind. It, it, wind can just totally kill us for we sure. We can kill it, right? I mean, you yeah. have a 30, 30 knot headwind. No, what, do that, do? That, what do you what do? You, you what can't do even you fly do? in that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, you're, 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 you're either, you're terrified if you're going downwind and you're, and you're terrified even more if you're trying to go it upwind because you're not, <laughs> you're flying backwards. Um, yeah. you, let's talk about risk for a second. Uh, you, you mentioned something in our email exchanges before we we sat down today that surprised me that sailplanes are statistically not that dissimilar uh, and i yeah. that, you, there's a big there's a big difference there you'll talk about that but that surprised me i, I, I yeah, people are creating in sailplanes too like huh? when i when i came back to the sport i really wanted to understand how dangerous it really is and so the way I thought about this was I tried to look at all kinds of activities that people do in their in their you know in their spare time that are somewhat risky, and I, I tried to say you know I tried to figure out how risky how what's the chance that you die uh, doing it um, within a certain by, by activity hour 
So mm -hmm. per hour that you, you're doing it, right? So how, how long can you safely do it before you are basically expected to get killed? <laughs> it doesn't sound very good. <laughs> well, but, you know, but, it's aviation. But, we, yeah. But, yeah, and so so I did that study and I tried. It's very really hard to come by good data. Uh, really, really difficult. So I, I tried, and it took me a few months to do this uh, to, over the winter. Like, there wasn't any flying and I didn't have any anything else really to do so i worked i worked on this stuff yeah it's it's not hugely dissimilar so uh flying gliders the risk of dying in gliders per hour is um is not a lot uh lower than it is for paragliders it is lower it's about i think it's about 1.5 is the is the difference factor so it's it's 1.5 times more risky to your life in in paragliders or okay. in hang gliders than it is for gliders but that risk difference isn't isn't you know that's not very high. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like if you compare it to commercial aviation, we're now talking 200 times less risky, not not 1.5 times less risky. Okay. Right? So it's okay. like we're, we're in totally different orders of magnitude versus we're in the same order of magnitude. We're not far off, quite frankly. Wow. We have a lesser degree, a lesser risk of getting severely injured on top of that dying risk. I'm assuming every takeoff, every landing in, in, in paragliders has some inherent risk. Definitely. You're going to have some injury of, uh, of, um, uh, to your legs or to your back or to, mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't know, you know? Yeah, no, that's definitely where, you know, statistically it's launching and landing. You know, it's very, you know, that, that, that certainly we have a lot of the catastrophic stuff that happens low to the ground in the sky. You know, typically if you're high, People can deal with it and reserves work really well, but you know, it's the, it's the stuff that you would think, you know, it's the launching yeah. and landing well, and it's and when you're trying to scratch out and you're low, you know, you're trying to yeah. get up from a low position. And, and I also looked deeply at the, in detail into what it, what is it that actually makes it so dangerous? What are the really root causes? So I, I read a ton, a ton of um, uh, accident reports. Uh, and, and in many countries, they're, they're doing a lot of work on accident reports. Germany is in particular. Germany has about a third, accounts for a third of all glider flying worldwide. And they do an exceptionally great job at documenting every incident. And I speak German, so that helps understanding mm -hmm. these reports. Mm -hmm. So uh, I went into and tried to find out what are the really root causes? When do people get into a situation where they kill themselves? And is it, is it, is it, pilot's fault or is it is somebody else to blame and i found about 90 percent of accidents can be avoided uh, so i think that's an important Whoa. thing so you can actually think about it like in 90 percent you'd say yep you could definitely have made a different decision as the pilot so that's really then underst understanding why is it that what went wrong why did it go wrong um, and then i found that the most important uh, the single most important root cause is when a pilot delays the decision to land for gliders, I, oh, wow. I, I can't say that for for anything else. But if you if you're getting too low, and, and a lot of them happen right next to the airport, people come back and they find the runway is occupied, and they're like, I don't want to push my glider back uh, so far. I don't want to land far in, in, at the at the far end and then push the glider back. I'm gonna wait until this runway is clear, and then they keep circling and circling and circling, and then they find themselves. Okay, finally the runway is clear. Now they are so low. They try to find fly the final approach. Then they make the turn to final, and uh, there's trees in the way, and they are trying to get over the trees. And now they're getting below stall speed, and suddenly the uh, suddenly the glider spins in because they're below stall speed, and they're on a shallow 
but they, they try to you know then then they try to fly uncoordinated and keep keep the keep the the the, the lower wing up uh, by flying the turn with the rudder now they're skidding through the turn and they spin in and that's the recipe for death basically because once you're spinning in in a glider close to the ground that's when you die uh, because now you, you're rotating into the ground and the wing is going to hit the ground first and it just drives the nose into the ground and uh, and then you die. So uh, that's a classic case, very simple to avoid uh, incident. Just make your decision to land early enough. I never thought about that with, with, the, with, with you guys that, you know, we were talking about, I was imagining, okay, you're at 16,000 feet and you've got, you know, you've got Grand Junction on Clyde and you decide, okay, you know, it's the end of the day. I'm going to go there and you give yourself 200 feet <laughs> of, uh, you know, wiggle room, you know, maybe not nearly enough. And, and then you get there and the runway is occupied. So are you, are you talking to the tower way, way, way in advance to make sure you guys can't just go on a, you know, around a few more times? Yeah. I mean, usually the way you do it differently. So yeah, first of all, most of our airport landings are not towers. They're, 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 they're just uncontrolled airports okay um but but the the way you approach it is is you you you're supposed to approach an airport that you are arriving at a 1000 feet above ground oh okay so so whenever my flight computer is actually my flight computer set to 1500 feet especially for airports that i don't it's set to 1500 feet for airports that i am not familiar with okay and where, or where there may be more air traffic um, and especially in most cases, when you arrive at an airport that doesn't have glider operations, chances are there's absolutely nobody has a freaking clue about gliders. Uh, the I've talked to many airplane pilots, and they they're like a glider. What is that? Mm. Uh, so there's a lot of glider, a, a lot of airplane pilots who don't even know that we exist. Wow. So now you you turn up at an airport, <laughs> and you're in the pattern. You say I'm I'm a glider. I'm about to land him. Like. A glider, um, and then somebody will tell you, you know, you're number three. You're number three to land. Hold, <laughs> hold, hold your altitude. I'm like, I, I can't, <laughs> I can't hold my altitude. I'm landing right now. <laughs> so that's common, really. Wow. It it it, it, it would be common. So yeah, basically, wow. what you do is is when you land at another airport, you are you arrive high enough, you announce yourself, you say, I'm a glider. And I'm I'm about to land, and uh, and then you know if somebody pushes back, you just tell them you're unable to do whatever they wish to do, and, um, and you're allowed to do it. You have you have priority by the rules. It's just most people don't know about it. Right, right. So you can just be yeah, a so, little little verbally forceful. But but it's it not a situation where I'm going on a final glide, and I'm like. Uh, I'm barely I'm, gonna squeak it in. Yeah, barely gonna squeak in. I mean, some people do that, but it's not a safe practice. Uh, I would definitely not. But it doesn't. You. It doesn't have to happen. It really usually does not have to happen. The only times when these things tend to happen is in in um, in soaring competitions, uh, as they used to have them when they had the uh, the arrival at the deck, basically just at at ground level at the airport. Uh, those rules are gone. So uh, all our competitions. So, for example, when I flew the nationals last year, the the arrival was uh, 1500 AGL, so 1500 feet. And you've got a whole end, so end of speed cylinder. To, you know, you've got an end of speed, so the race the, stops, the cylinder, and then you got plenty of time. A, a finish to... a finish cylinder. You're getting into the finish cylinder. You have to be over 1500 feet to not get penalties. Uh, you're getting penalized if you fly if you come in lower than that. 
And so you basically, and the penalties are so high, it's not worth it. So uh, you definitely want to arrive at 1500 uh, or above. And if you arrive at 1500, there's plenty of time. Now you've got a few minutes if you need to, to sort out the, the landing. And especially in the contest, I think it's hugely important because now you've got, in a contest, you've got 20 gliders arriving at the same time. So now you've got a, a runway. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you gotta see, you gotta sequence your landing somehow, the, right? The, the, can we dig into that 90% could be avoided a little bit more? What are the other things yep. that were really, that really popped out? So you, you talked about, you know, that you, for the most part, it was people not landing early enough, you know, not making yeah, decisions early enough. Yeah, delaying the decision to land is a huge factor. Yeah. Um, another huge factor is, um, is flying into the, flying too close to the ground, uh, especially on, on rich flying, in rich flying conditions. Okay. Uh, where people will just, um, you know, get hit, hit the ground. Um, or in, in, so one, one risk, for example, is, is, um, uh, that thermals and you must have the same thing. So you're flying along the ridge and you get a thermal that is starting right off where you're, where, where you are, uh, it creates a lot of turbulence around it. Uh, so what can happen in the glider is if, let's say you're flying on the ridge and there's an outcropping below the ridge and the thermal is breaking off below the ridge, not at ridge top, but it's breaking off below the ridge, that thermal can be so strong as you fly through it, it can, it can lift up your, uh, the, the wing that is on the, yep. that is away from the ridge the and, it will actually and... Turn the, it will turn the glider right into the ridge. Mm. Um, and uh, I don't know if you run into that situation. Oh yeah, or, totally. I mean, the worst thing with the, I guess the what would happen to us is you could take a collapse on the on the on the ridge side, which is worst case scenario because then you're spinning in towards the hill rather than taking okay. a collapse on the other. So yeah, yeah. no, it's that it happens a lot. Yeah. So so ridge flying close proximity to terrain. It's just that's a, it's a basically that's a judgment call. That's, mm-hmm. In that case, it's it's not a you know I count those as avoidable. Um, some some people, I mean, it depends on your depends on your viewpoint, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, every accident is avoidable by not flying. So, <laughs> so I mean, that's <laughs> but, but that's not how we can look at it, right? So it's it it's, it comes to a judgment call uh, whether you call. But what what hardly ever happens to us, and this is I think is a big difference. Uh, it's equipment issues are n- hardly ever an issue and if it's the equipment then it's usually the pilot's fault for putting it together the wrong way Mm. so that used to be a big issue for old gliders and if somebody goes into gliding and they buy an old glider that doesn't have automatic hookups so it basically means you as you put the glider together you have to uh, hook up each of the control surfaces separately uh, from the from actually assembling it Um, there have been numerous accidents uh, uh, over the years where people forget to hook up uh, let's say the elevator control. Uh, if you hook up and forget that, and you you take you're on takeoff roll, you take off behind the tow plane, and you have no elevator control, you you're already crashed. Hmm. There's there's really nothing you can do about it. That we call those schoolboy errors. It's just making dumb mistakes. Right, that's a dumb mistake. Yeah. Uh, and but those don't happen with modern gliders because they all have automatic hookups. So when you oh. put it together, the the controls are already hooked up too. You still have to check it. But equipment failure is hardly ever the reason. So you, the, these gliders are way more sturdy than the airplanes. 
so turbulence will not do anything. You know, you keep, you're not going to get a wing ripped off if it's booming. It's very, I mean, it, it happens, but it's so exceptionally, it's so exceptionally rare. It's exceptionally rare. I mean, it would be like if you're flying, you know, say you're flying above V&E uh, in wave and you're you're just hitting the, 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 the mother of all rotors. Uh, that's basically what would have to happen. Um, so if you if you like slow down to a hundred knots and not do it at at a hundred fifty knots when you hit the rotor, it's not gonna, not gonna be a problem. Is you you might hit your head on the canopy pretty hard, but <laughs> but the glider will you know those gliders are super sturdy. Is is wave the most dangerous flying you do? No, I don't think no. so. I, no, I mean wave is wave can be dangerous. Wave can be dangerous. Depend. I mean. Wave could be very dangerous depending on how you fly in wave. It, that's really comes back to the pilot again. I mean, the risks in wave are, uh, you know, obviously your oxygen has to work, so you have the hypoxia risk. Um, there's a risk that you get dragged into cloud. That would be that could be a catastrophic risk if you're at, at high altitude. Now you get dragged into into a lenticular cloud that, that, that builds right on your side. You might not even see it if you don't watch out for it. But those happen rarely. First of all, not many people fly in wave conditions at these altitudes, so the frequency of those is pretty low. Um, uh, I would say, for you know, in practical terms, a risk I'm I'm concerned about is that I uh, that my glide path to the airport gets blocked by thunderstorms, mm. uh, especially you know with big hail. Uh, so we do have that here. So each time I come back from the the west towards Boulder, for example, if you fly across the Continental Divide, and uh, there's sometimes you have to make a decision: do I do I commit to flying towards Boulder? Uh, or do I stay on the west side, depending on what the sky looks like, without knowing for absolutely certain that there's a clear path towards towards landing? Mm. Uh, so that that is, I think, weather risks are uh, a risk. You could avoid that, obviously. You, you know, that would, in my book, count as an avoidable accident, as a pilot mistake, because I else. could just I could just say, yeah, okay, I'll land in Granby on the other side, and uh, just have to call my buddies and they have to get the trailer and then they have to drive for five hours and pick me up. Good, good, good segue. How important, how much weight do you as a community, not just you, but is it to get home? Is it, it's not as easy to retrieve as we are. You don't get to go out on the road and stick your thumb out. Um, is that, no, is that most weigh heavily on you or on a big day? You don't care. You're going to go big. Uh, we go big and, and we have a, you know, it's, it's in our community, we have basically we have a volunteer retrieve list. So everyone and, and in, in our club, we've got probably 40 members that are on that list who, who basically say, well, and it's a, it's a mutual commitment. We just basically say, if somebody lands somewhere else, uh, we're going to retrieve them. And in, in exchange, uh, you have the promise that you will be retrieved um, by your buddies. Mm. Right? So it's, a, it's a mutual thing, but it doesn't happen very often. So the, in practical terms, it's not a big deal because we don't often land somewhere else. Uh, I mean, I have there's very few times in in uh, my it's close to a thousand hours now. Uh, I've very few times that I actually had to land somewhere that um, that I didn't intend to land at. Mm. So it doesn't happen. Take that the day. Often. Take take the day and and imagine you know a perfect day is a hundred percent. How much, what percentage, so we've got, you know, mind frame, preparation, currency, all the things that, that go into making 
you know, you're going to go out and do a 1500K FAI triangle, you know, the biggest you've ever done. I don't know. I just threw that out there. But that, that would be a big one. Yeah. That'd be a big one. How much of that is weather and not not by that day i'm talking forecasting how much of that is is you spending time in front of a computer looking at tell me is it sky site xc skies mm -hmm. noaa what mm -hmm. you know so tell me the resources mm -hmm. you use and mm -hmm. it carved that up yep uh, it is um for me it's sky site most of the time um okay. and uh i do use xc skies uh it I've, i'm uh, struggling a little bit with picking which model which model to pick there's so many models <laughs> and uh, it depends on the site that you add uh, which model tends to be giving mm. you the better results than, mm. than the other models so I find just most of the time I'm just too lazy to to try and study eight different models uh, yeah. so uh, I, I tend to personally I try to use uh, I tend to use skyside there is some uh, some other resources too. Uh, Dr. Jacks uh, is for us. I don't know if that rings a bell. Yeah, yeah, we use um, Dr. Jacks a lot. So you use the balloon soundings. We use that. We use soundings. Yeah, but uh, for the most part, Skyside is is actually Skyside has become my go-to tool. Uh, I use Top Media for a while. Um, how much do I spend on it? Um, usually, watch the weather a few days in advance for looking for good days. Uh, when then when I know. Oh, the, the evening before is usually when I do my task planning. So the forecast is good enough that I will spend maybe um, an hour uh, at night uh, looking at uh, the weather. And, I'm, and that's when I plan the task. So wh where, where should I go? What, what, what turn points should I declare that would be best aligned with the weather? And um, when will it get me on final glide early enough? And you do the timing calculations of when do you have to take off and, uh, and, and where do you have to be at each of the turn points to make it back home? Um, and uh, um, and then on the day off, in the I'll, I'll check in the morning before I drive to the airport. Uh, I'll check if something has changed and that, that might cause me to change some of the turn points or I might dial the whole thing back or it might... Uh, make me expand it a little more, uh, but that's about that's about the extent. We we have this saying that you know fly the day, not your desire. And I've often found you know if I put a lot of effort the night before into you know I've seen it usually a few days out on GFS and okay it's looking like a good day and you start rallying your crew and Thursday looks good and you know start thinking about okay what can we do with this if I you know, on the way up to launch, I've got, I've got my task in. And if it, I've often found that it's hard for me to break from that, if I've, if I've set that up as a goal, mm -hmm. man, I want to fly that goal. Whereas, you know, it's obvious that that's not setting up now, you know, models yeah. are just models. Right. And, yeah. uh, do you find that also hard? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's maybe, I would say, I would probably complete uh, maybe one out of two tasks or maybe one out of three tasks. So if I set myself ambitious tasks, I'm, I'm maybe I'm completing one in three tasks. Um, and it's just as, as you fly and you find, you know, it's what I, what the task that I set for myself is just not, it's just not going to work, but I'm going to still enjoy the day and I'm going to change my plan. Uh, but I think that is very up to the individual. So, uh, and, and how stubborn you are and, and how <laughs> flexible you are and, 
Uh, I mean, there, there are people who don't like to do task planning at all. We have we have people in the club that have like, I I like this task. It's usually the weather is good, uh, and that's the task that I want to accomplish this year. And they it, each time they take off, they try that task, and they haven't spent any time really understanding. Uh, if that task is supported by the weather on that particular day, they just try to do that task. Mm. And but chances are it will take them a long time to complete the task, unless the task is really simple, right? I mean, there's tasks. You can set yourself tasks so you can complete almost any day. But, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's totally individual. I, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm not, sure, uh, I'm not sure you can even answer. But, you know, we talked about that, hang gliders, paragliders, foot launch pilots might have this advantage uh, coming to sailplanes because of their background and their understanding of thermals and, you know, being, being more comfortable with banking it up uh, is we're just more comfortable doing that in, in our aircraft maybe. But uh, what do you think would be the reverse? Is there, are there some things that sailplane pilots uh, that we don't know that we're not clued into that, that you know, if you came, if we reversed roles there, <clears throat> what would be the whoa? I you know, what could you teach me that I probably don't know? Whew, uh, I think that's a difficult one. Um, um, I mean, we have we have. I I I really don't know what you don't know. That's that's I yeah, that's, that's a hard my, one, isn't my, it? Yeah. That's my my problem, right? Um, I mean, where would we be? really good that a paraglider a foot launch pilot might not be. For example, I, you know, Chuck asked me a question in the show that uh, I was really surprised. The, he, he said that his buddies that fly out at Marshall in the San Bernardino mountains, yep. you know, they'll often be up there on a blue day and, you know, having a good day and they don't see paragliders. And, mm-hmm. and I, I was that, really caught me off guard because I thought, well, mm-hmm. they're either not seeing them or mm-hmm. I don't know that crew as well as I thought, because I thought that, you know, I, I know I have a lot of friends that fly out there religiously. A bunch of them live there. And, you know, mm-hmm. if it's a flyable day, they're, they're flying. They don't care if it's blue. And I mean, we obviously just like you, I'm sure we love it when there's clouds, but yeah. you know, blue days are, you got to train for those too. And, you know, so my, my thought was, it's probably more windy than he, than those guys, than, you know, we can't handle a lot of wind. And I would imagine yeah. it's just more windy on those days that's for a sailplane I, pilot. It's, it's yeah. fine, but. That's what I suspect. I don't, I don't see that blue day thing as a, as I was surprised quite frankly about that, about that uh, observation when I listened to that, to the podcast. Yeah. Um, uh, and I mean, I, I listened to your, your answer. I think there was some discussion about, you, you thought there was, there were way more para paraglider pilots out there than than glider pilots and as glider pilots we think there are more glider pilots out there than there are paraglider pilots. awesome see i uh, love this is, I... so 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 i thought that might be a good a good uh, point of discussion uh if i fly out of boulder i often see you know we it's a pretty big paraglider community yeah. it's a reasonable pair i mean you you tell me how many you know i don't it's, know but i think but, it's very big i don't know the numbers but i know that that's i think it's the fastest growing uh region in the states for paragliding that you know that their, yeah. their clubs but, but doing a good I, job when i go fly most of the time i see glider pilots and i don't see paraglider pilots during flight um so so the the, the time when i see paraglider pilots is right after launch Right, especially on days when you can actually get off from the airport as a glider pilot 
reasonably reasonably early. We oftentimes have to tow far deep into the mountains, but most of the time we don't. Uh, uh, but but sometimes we don't. And the paragliders, they always most of the paraglider traffic here tends to be pretty close to the foot of the hills. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't go deep in, whereas we fly always deep in. And when I talk to paraglider pilots, they tell me, well. We they, they just they look at our flight traces online and they say, How on earth are you gonna fly that far back? I wish I could fly that far back. And they 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 listen to my stories about the convergence line and where the convergence line sets up and how it sets up and how to use it for f- flying straight. And I'm like, I wish I could get back there. And I'm like, Well, uh, me too, because if I don't get back there, I can't fly at all. Yeah. Uh, I often it, so so we tend to fly in different spaces most of the time, uh, and it's rare. So it, I mean, I, I do see occasionally I see paraglider pilots high up in the sky, far away from anywhere. So happened in Utah last year. Happened a few times where I'm like over the Wasatch and at uh, seventeen thousand feet, I'm like, holy shit, there's a paraglider, <laughs> and and I say holy shit because because we have. Um, and I think it's just, that's, that's maybe if the if if the sport grows and keeps growing, um, I, th- there's there's a potential for a safety risk sure. because because the glider pilots with our technology we're increasingly uh, you know obviously you have to look out the window uh, and you you do all the time because you're looking for the clouds and you're looking for where to, to find lift but in terms of orientating yourself where other traffic is. We're very the, the 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 technology has so advanced that we see everybody where they are, and increasingly all the gliders have ADS, you know, have transponders. They have FLARM, so we have anti-collision systems. Increasingly, even ADS-B out. And the more technology there is in gliders, the more you expect that any object that is flying yeah. around in the sky uh, shows up on your instruments. And if you don't see anything on your instruments, your brain might assume nothing is there. Yeah. And I mean, let's face it, you know, when, if we're at the same elevation and we're, you know, we're ships in the night, you know, coming right at one another, we are really hard to see for you guys and vice well, versa. You guys, you, know? you guys are actually a lot easier to see than gliders. Well, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you're, the you're way easier. You got chugger. colorful canopies. And, right. But and, if it's uh, right at the same level, you know, you know, it it's one thing if we're banked up, you know, but if we're yeah. right at the same level it's you know same thing it's, it's hard for us to see one another and so i mean we're freaked out i mean gliders against gliders yeah that is I the bet. biggest concern right so because we tend to we fly the same lift lines right and most of our flying is straight as i said right i mean my i think my average for last year was uh i think below 20 percent circling percentage so i'm at it's 80 percent of my time that I fly is straight. Wow. More than eighty percent of the time, sexy straight. Yeah, <laughs> but so, so, but but now and it's at a hundred knots, and so now you've got two gliders coming at each other at a hundred knots. Closing speed is two hundred knots, and we're flying exactly the same lift lines, right? We're we're flying the same height band, usually between fourteen thousand and now well, fifteen thousand and seventeen thousand five hundred, somewhere between fifteen and seventeen five. That is for the most part where I spend my time. Almost are, all of my cross-country flights are almost all in that height band. So mid-airs and must happen. They they do happen, yeah. They don't happen that often. We're more concerned about them than than is uh, statistically um, sure. uh, appropriate, if you will. Right. Uh, in Europe, in Europe, it's a bigger concern because there's more 
glider traffic, uh, much more glider traffic, especially in Germany and in the Alps. Yeah, that's where you have a lot more glider traffic. Uh, but 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 if for us, it's a big concern. That's why we have all that technology in gliders. And so now I'm saying, you know, I, I'm I'm always monitoring. I'm I know where my buddies are flying. I the entire flight, I know where people are. Uh, and we also will make radio calls to each other and say, you know, I'm I'm here. I'm, I'm yeah, I'm I'm uh, over yeah, I'm over Mount Evans and uh, I'm yeah, northbound seventeen thousand feet northbound. And so everyone knows northbound means that he's gonna fly along the convergence. Right. <laughs> <laughs> huh. uh, and exactly nowhere, right? So and so um, we monitor each other and we so we communicate with one another and so we're trying to have this situational awareness and mental picture of where everybody is. Yeah, and our our new varios are often they often have FLARM now and it's you know it's it's slowly transitioning. Oh, you do have FLARM now yeah, too. That's it's, some, it's it's yeah. slowly transitioning. Not many people here because mm-hmm. because it's just it's not nearly as well. You know, most other pilots don't have it yet. That uh, yeah. and you know when you're in the Alps, it's it's you know it's highly recommended because everybody's got them. You know, all the sailplanes have yeah. them. And and uh, but here we just like you said, there's not that much traffic, and so I think yeah. it's been a much slower uptake. It's it's definitely you know people are talking about it on the forums and stuff, and I, I think you know hopefully it'll it'll get there. You know the big the big change for us has been, you know, pretty much every pilot has an inreach these days. And that's, yeah, yeah. you know, we that's, fly with that's those terrific. Too, yeah. yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure you do. I mean, they, they, it must be complicated because you, you've got a lot less room to carry stuff. Yeah. Right? And, and everything's to, a weight decision. You have to decision. carry it up the mountain, yeah. right? I mean, you, you basically Absolutely. have to carry all this Yeah. Stuff. I mean, we're trying, we try to trim wherever we possibly can, but, yeah. you know, but our, our Varios are, you know, they're, they're in the low grams, they're tiny. And it's just a, it's just an audible Vario and it connects to your phone, mm-hmm. you know, so the phone has really eliminated a lot of the stuff that we used to have to carry. And, and then, and the F arm is built in there, you know, so it's, mm-hmm. it's tiny. It's just no big deal. What we don't have is, you know, a very easy way, you know, you'd have to have another device. They have it on the phone now too, to show you, you know, to, so we see you too. It, mostly mm-hmm. it's set up so you can see us. Uh, and we rely on you because you've got a nice cockpit and, you know, you've got better yeah. instruments to avoid us. It's not so yeah. much the other way around. Well, so you're, you're much less maneuverable. You're just much slower. That's it. I mean, it's if you came right at to, us, you're, yeah, <laughs> we're I mean, toast. It's hard to avoid, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm super careful when I fly with paraglides. I mean, I, I enjoy it. I really enjoy it. And I use, you know, it's just, it's kind of fun to, to, you know, people circling in the middle and you're just flying around them. <laughs> and it's a, it's a nice competition and see if I can, if I can keep up. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, you know, we, I've never talked to anybody that minds flying with sailplanes. It's always a wave and we're psyched, you know, and it's just, it's always thrilling for us to see, you know, how fast you go, you know? So Chuck asked me, is it annoying to fly with sailplanes? I've never, you know, I've heard of a couple midairs with sailplanes and, and, and paragliders in, in the Alps. And they've, the ones I've heard about have been catastrophic for both parties, you know, so it's something yeah. obviously we're careful about and, but we know you are too. And you, you, it's same thing. You don't turn nearly as tight as we do. So when we're in a thermal together, it's pretty easy to share. Yeah. Yeah. It's usually, it's not, a, it's usually, it's not a problem. I mean, there's only so many people I can watch out for. Right? So if, if there's more than three or four in a gaggle, I, I tend to stay away from it. 
I don't I don't like to fly with, yeah. when when you have a gaggle of with twenty paragliders. This this is not it's not I'm not gonna I'm not gonna mess with that. Clemens, too, what's the what's the uh, in your sport? You know, I, I hung out with Gary Asoba quite a bit. Uh, I think a legend in you know hang gliding. He was the one that found Zapata, or or a group of those guys found Zapata. I'm not sure if it was actually him, but you know, I've I've talked to him quite a bit. He's down in Moriarty, and he talks about flying speed. You know, his his big thing now is flying really really fast, and and not so much you know the ten hour, eleven hour trying to break distance records, but trying to get around the course or the task as fast as possible. You know, no, more nose down kind of flying, like you talked about. It sounds like with mm-hmm. X contest now, or however you you're. Do you use X contest? Is that no? It's 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 um, a difference. It's different. Yeah. Okay. Different. So, but is it, is it, you know, are you building towards per land? You know, is that just the ultimate in sailplanes or what is it? No, uh, I, is very specific. That's one glider. It's one glider that is specifically, specifically built to fly in ultra high wave. It has to have a pressurized cockpit. I mean, this is, it's not our world. I mean, we watch Perlin out of great interest, right? We're fascinated by it, but it's more as a, as a spectator. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a chance to, they had a, uh, they had a simulator for Perlin at the last uh, soaring convention and uh, you could fly in the simulator and, and land the Perlin thing. I, I, yeah, I'd be, you could, almost can't see out of this glider because the, the windows are on the side and they're like round holes and you can't even look straight. I mean, it's, I, oh, really? I wouldn't, I wouldn't be for me now. Uh, now the, the, the gliders, there's, there's, I would say there's a few different, um, I mean, like in all sports, right? People have different intentions, but um, the sport of soaring, I would say there is, there's comps, obviously there's racing. So people who, who just enjoy that and that is more of, is as much of a social thing than anything else. Uh, you just like to compete and you'd like to fly with your friends. Uh, that's where you go to soaring contests. Um, you don't usually use the full day. You don't fly as far as you could, right? So for example, at this 18 meter nationals that I mentioned, we had like the most amazing weather. We had one of the fastest soaring flights that were ever flown, uh, which is pretty amazing. We had almost everybody finished with more than 100 miles per hour. Wow. average speed so the the winning speed john seaborn our local champion here and he win, he finished that day first he flew 188 kph so 118 miles per hour i believe 118 miles per hour God. this was over a, a 568 kilometer uh, task but we only flew a 568 kilometer task yeah uh, that day it would have supported easily 1500 because Ooh. that was just an absolutely amazing day right but that's what you do at contests you fly with friends you fly fast you compete you're having fun right Mm. so that's one that's one set there is there's a guy a few guys and i i really admire them that that do these absolutely amazing spectacular flights um a lot of them are in europe i don't there's not a lot in the u.s but i'm I'm super fascinated by them i find it super inspiring there's a guy called klaus olman yes i think he's been uh, trying to get him on the show i want to get him around 80 or something i'm not sure but he's he's like amazing a legend absolutely a legend 
and and he would fly these unbelievable flights where he takes off in France uh, in the in the in the Alps, and then he crosses the sea to Corsica, and then he climbs in wave over Corsica, and then he will fly over to Italy, and then he flew from Italy, he flew down in Italy, flew down to the to Sicily, that he climbed in wave, what? he crossed over to Greece. And then he crossed Greece. Jesus. He crossed Greece and landed close to the Turkish border. I mean, what? Isn't, that, isn't that unbelievable in a, in, a, I, in a sailplane? So I've heard all these triangle stories that blow my mind, but you're basically yeah, following is, the Alps. This is, this is what? Are you serious? That is I'm crazy. Serious. That was last year or two years before, two years ago, something like that, a year ago. Unbelievable flight. Oh, my God. Another guy did the same Corsica thing to Italy, but he then flew a triangle back. He flew north in Italy. So he had to go in wave across to Corsica and then in wave to go climbing wave in Corsica high enough to get to Italy. And then he, he had to reach, he reached sword up portion and then he thermal soared through the Po Valley, which was almost impossible. And then he had to get back over through thermals uh, over the Alps to make it back to the starting point. And that was a triangle flight. Um, awesome. So there's, there's some unbelievable inspiring flights that people that people it, can do. It, where where in North America are they doing stuff like that that you're you're looking at going is it the Owens is it the stuff they're doing out in Nevada Stan is it just yeah the Owens well the Owens Valley isn't I mean the Owens Valley is amazing uh, conditions uh, but it tends to be like this north south route that is just, just you can go extremely fast flights because you're and that's usually most of them are in wave uh, so you do in the in the Sierra Nevada wave it is north south uh, yo yo runs uh, at exceptionally high speed. They, they they don't interest me that much personally because it's it's kind of flying in waves. It's once you figured out how to do it, it's kind of boring mm-hmm. uh, and cold. Uh, <laughs> so I always freeze my feet off, and and you just just you know you, you know where to point it, and you just you just go straight. And they they go straight all day long. They they never circle, not, you, not once. Do you fly in sleeping bags and stuff? How how high can you? get and and literally not turn into an ice cube in your plane when they're not pressurized you know when when does it start to just get beyond it depends on the season i mean in the summer when we fly we we tend to, we have to fly below class a most of the time right so there's very few places we could there are some places where you can get localized wave windows where you can climb higher yeah but most of the time we fly below eighteen thousand. oh okay and so you're not below, going you're not boosting 18, the 40s and stuff I mean, there are the Colorado state record is 45,000 feet. So that, wow. that would freeze everything off. Yeah. I, I, but not many people do those high, high altitude flying is, is a, is a very niche uh, okay. thing. And, and it's sort of, you know, it, and it's because it's kind of capped by, uh, by the, whether you have a pressurized cockpit or not, there are no new, there are no new records to break really. Uh, the mm-hmm. only way you break new records is with a Perlin glider. Okay. Right. So, so it's and if you don't break records, um, it's it's I mean, whether you can cl- whether you climb to thirty two thirty thousand feet or to thirty four thousand feet, it's just it to me it doesn't it doesn't do anything. I got you. It, yeah. it doesn't do anything. Uh, what what sort of you know would inspire me would be like a flight from you know across all the Rockies, uh, like if you could fly from and there's a there's a uh, um, Kempton Izuno is the guy who proposed that that flight uh, that would go from from Boulder to the Pacific Ocean, 
that would be that would be pretty amazing if you could fly in one day from Boulder, take off in Boulder, and land uh, at uh, in California at the coast, and do it in one day. That would be uh, what would pretty that, big. Whoa! What would that, that route would, look like? Um, it would go well. It would first it crosses it would cross the Front Range. I would probably do it at the uh, sort of you know northwest of Estes, and then fly along the the Rabbit Ears Range. Um, and then uh, from there, uh, there's there's ridges um, uh, north of uh, the, the the Moab area. If you go north of Moab, where the yeah. where the, 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 the these mesa plateaus are, yeah. you know, basically yeah. along these mesas into the high Uintas, um, and then along the Uintas, and then you cross into the western desert, west of uh, basically. We are south a little bit, north of Nephi, south of Salt Lake City. Um, get out of that, you know, don't get into the airspace there. Yeah. Um, towards Eli, Nevada. Okay. And then uh, from 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 there, um, um, get, yeah, if you can make it from there to the Owens Valley and then you're... you're up and over. You're up and over, yeah. Whoa. See, that's the kind of stuff, you know, e- even, a, even a short version of that is would be exceptionally rare for us because it's always West, you know, and we just can't go against the wind. I mean, you get these, right. you know, spring and fall, you get these rare days where I don't know if that flight is doable, but it's a, it's an inspiring idea. Oh <laughs> God, that'd be incredible. What a party yeah. when you get there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. I mean, I got to look at, at Klaus's flights. I had no idea he was doing that. I knew he was, you know, I'd heard about these monster 1500K FAI triangles, you know, seven countries in a day type stuff that mm-hmm. that are that would just be amazing, you know, flying the Maritimes and the High Alps and the, uh, just all just seeing it all in one day would be incredible. But I just I didn't know they were crossing the Med and I wow and to I mean, Greece that is unbelievably it's amazing, right? That's absolutely amazing. I just I, didn't, there's, I there's had no idea who, that was possible. There's now guys who've connected the Alps and the Pyrenees. Uh, and that yeah. is another amazing thing, right? Where you fly the Alps and then you basically make the jump over to the Pyrenees and you fly the Pyrenees. Uh, so, see, this is the thing about, you know, <laughs> ah, the sailplanes are so cool. I, it's just that, you know, it's, it, that's, the, I, I hope people listening to this go, yeah, okay. Now I really got to do this because, you know, it's one of these things I've thought about for you. I've always just thought, yeah, you know, someday, you know, like you said, when my landing gear is not as good, then I'll get into sailplanes. But, you know, that's just got to be incredible. Well, you should, you should come back to Boulder to your alma mater and we'll go flying. Let's do it. Let's do it. Huh? How about that? I'll, I'll take you up on that. Let's do yeah. it. Clemens, thank you very much. What a joy. And uh, this was this was a lot of fun. And I really appreciate your time. Thanks for sharing this with me. And good luck with your good luck with racing and your your speedy education there. And congratulations on the success you've already had. Well, thank you. I mean, thanks for having me. This was a uh, was a ton of fun. I'm gonna, you know, this is I'm gonna go back and listen to your past episodes because it's <laughs> I go trail running. I need something to listen to. This is this is perfect. Great, great. If you find the cloud-based mayhem valuable, you can support it in a lot of different ways. You can give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher, or however you get your podcast. That goes a long ways and helps spread the word. You can blog about it on your own website or share it on social media. You can talk about it on the way up to launch with your pilot friends. I know a lot of interesting conversations have happened that way. 
And of course, you can support us financially. This show does take a lot of time, a lot of editing, a lot of storage and music and all kinds of behind the scenes costs. So if you can support us financially, all we've ever asked for is a buck a show. And you can do that through a one-time donation through PayPal, or you can set up a subscription service that charges you for each show that comes out. We put a new show out every two weeks. So for example, if you did a buck a show and every two weeks, it'd be about $25 a year. So way cheaper than a magazine subscription and it makes all of this possible. I do not want to fund this show with advertising or sponsors. We get asked about that uh, pretty frequently, but I, for a whole bunch of different reasons, which I've said many times on the show, I don't want to do that. I don't like having that stuff at the front of the show. And I also want you to know that these are authentic conversations with real people, and these are just our opinions, but our opinions are not being skewed by sponsors or advertising dollars. I think that's a pretty toxic business model. So I hope you dig that. Um, you can support us. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com, you can find the places to support. You can do it through patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. If you want a recurring subscription, you can also do that directly through the website. Uh, we try to make it really easy, and that will give you access to all the bonus material, a little video cast that we do and extra little uh, nuggets that we find in conversations that don't make it into the main show, but we feel like you should hear we don't put any of that behind a paywall. If you can't afford to support us, then just let me know and I'll set you up with an account. Of course, that'll be lifetime. And hopefully in a, you're being in a position someday to be able to support us. But you'll find all that on the website. Uh, all of you who have supported us or even joined our newsletter or bought Cloud-Based Mayhem merchandise, t-shirts or hats or anything, you should be all set up. You should have an account. And you should be able to access all that bonus material now. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your support, and we'll see you on the next show. Thank you. Thank you.